And I believe when you love someone that much, that that's what you want for them. You want them to be happy, no matter if you're around or not. And I knew that was my one and only choice. And I made it there. And then I knew that what I wanted for the boys is to create the happiest life possible. I had no idea how at that stage, but I knew that was where I'm going. So you just need a goal. You just need a goal to know where you're going and then do the first step and then the next and then the next. Welcome everyone to The Ultimate Shift. Join Ephraim Glick and leading figures in business and entertainment as they share their stories of regular people overcoming tremendous obstacles only to achieve happiness, success, and fulfillment. Are you ready to make the ultimate shift in your life? Okay, welcome back to The Ultimate Shift. Today, we have Marie Alessi, who is a best-selling author, influencer, and speaker. Marie has been through quite a bit in her life, and you're here to share your story and kind of what you have done to overcome grief and basically find happiness through grief. And so welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on and for our guests to get to know who you are. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about Marie Alessi and who is she and how, you know, where did you grow up? You currently live in Australia. And so tell us a little bit about your story and what got you to where the the message that you're now sharing with the world. So how many hours have we got? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I give you, <laughs> I give you the natural version. Um, <laughs> I give you the natural version because when people ask me, where did you come from? Where did you grow up? That's a very long story. But the natural version is I grew up in Austria and lived in Germany for about seven years as well, then back to Austria, and then I moved to Australia for good in 2004. So it was always a huge dream of mine to come and move here, and I always had this strong inner calling that this is where I belong. That's the only way how I can explain it. People never understand, really. It's like, so what got you here? And people always think I moved here because of my husband. I said, no, I just moved here because I knew this is my home. That's how it felt to me. And uh, I met Rob. 10 months after I moved here. So it was absolutely meant to be. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, so I met my future husband 10 months after I moved here, as I just said, and uh, we got married another 10 months later. If somebody would have told me that prior, I would have said, no way. Like if he's missed the right, he'll still be missed the right in three to five years. But when I met Rob, there was just no questions asked. It was just, yeah, he's, he's it. You know, he's the one. And I just knew it. And, um, well, he obviously knew too, because he proposed about five months after, which was amazing. And then another five months later, we were married with our dream wedding, barefoot wedding at the beach, had, uh, you know, the beautiful home and two boys soon after. And, uh, yeah, it, it was just an incredible, uh, living the dream, basically. We were that couple that everybody looked up to. And, uh, it was like, it's crazy how much you guys are in love. It's so beautiful. And, um, yeah, fast forward, because we don't have hours and hours to tell about our beautiful romantic love story. Fast forward um, 13 years. Can we pause there one second? Because I have a question. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm really curious. I hear people say, when you're talking about love, like, I just knew that was the one and, and so forth. Yeah. How yeah. did you know? What, you know, for, for anybody that's saying... I want to find that. I want to know what that feels like to to yeah. have found the one, you know, like 
Disney tells us our whole life, like talks about soulmates and then many people struggle yeah. with it. And some people think that yeah. there is that soulmate. So for you, how did you know? What about that was telling your gut, like, this is the guy? Was it the comfortable part mm-hmm. of the relationship? Was it just a mutual agreement? Were, you, were there, mm-hmm. you know, was there so much compatibility between your you and him? And your <laughs> I'm so glad you asked because it's that... I ask the exact same question. You know, I always say to people, how do you know? Because people always say, oh, when you know, you know. I thought, what a stupid answer. I'm sorry to say that. But just, you know, how does it explain anything? And when I met Rob, I knew exactly what they meant because it really is that feeling of you just know. And for me to explain it in any other ways would be when you leading up to that big day, to your wedding day, um, some people do have this, oh, am I doing the right thing? And that little tiny voice nagging within them going up, check, check, check. Is that really what I want? Is that, you know, just going through these emotions of questioning it. And it's often something that they don't share, maybe with their closest friends, maybe with their mom if they're close to her, but not with anybody else. So it's that little tiny, a tiny doubting voice that nobody wants to hear in particular not leading up to your wedding day uh same for male and female as far as i know but i never had that not once not once leading up to the day not once when he asked me and not once in the 13 and a half years after did i ever have a moment of doubt that i did the wrong thing and i think that's that what people talk about when they say when you know you know that there is just no doubt in your mind, in your heart. And often when there is a big decision, like marrying somebody, I think it's a very big decision mm-hmm. because it's usually a lifelong commitment if you really take it as what it needs to be or should be or, you know, weird way of putting it, then uh, it is a huge decision. So if there's no little doubting voice within you, I think then you're doing pretty well. So how do you then grow that, you know, like, how do you make sure that the first year, the first two, three years aren't the honeymoon phase, if you will? Mm-hmm. And you keep, because because you guys were together for 13 years, right? Yeah. Prior to yeah. And, and so how did you continue to grow in, in a world where we're, what, 70% divorce rate now or, or higher? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and people tend to just kind of like, well, we're, we, we've, you know, we're, we've just grown apart or whatever. And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong to it. but mm-hmm. How did you guys continue to grow together and stay in love like that to where you (laughs) never had to doubt? Yeah, I I love this question. Seriously, I do. It's just so beautiful because when, so before I met Rob, I had uh, a series of rather not so healthy relationships and I always summed them up as there were lots of fireworks and lots of ashes. And with Rob, there was this tiny little flame that started burning brighter and brighter, and it never stopped till the very end. So it was really like a continuous process of falling in love with him more and more the more I got to know him. And over the years, you get to know yourself quite intimately. And I'm not just talking about intimacy. I'm talking about having children together, buying a house together, going through financial struggles together when you have your first mortgage and only one income. And that's when you actually get to know people really on the deepest level, how they truly are, how they feel within times of toughness. And uh, it's easy to fall in love and be happy when you are in that honeymoon phase, but then to still fall in love with that person when times get tough. I think that's where I valued Rob more than ever because he was just absolutely incredible in 
supporting me. He always put me on a pedestal. He raved about me to workmates. Everybody told me that, you know, it's like, well, I've never shut up about you. <laughs> it's like, I can't need to know if you're really that amazing. I'm like, a lot of pressure. I don't know if I am, but for him, I definitely was. So, yeah, it's just incredible. I think it's that keeping the lines of communication open, as, as cliche as that sounds, is more important than ever because, let's face it, those relationships that do break down, yes, maybe they are not compatible and maybe it was just a, a long time coming till they find out, but very often it is that um, you start con- having conversations in your mind rather than with the partner. And in particular, when you add kids to the mix and they're little and there is the sleep deprivation and, you know, a lot of parents will know what I'm talking about here, then the communication goes backwards and everything is just revolving around the children and the sleep and the lack of sleep and sometimes even dirty nappies. It's like what parents talk about, you know, mm-hmm. but you don't bring it back to self, to to you as a couple. And Rob and I, for many, many years, made sure that we had our Friday night was our date night. There was no distraction, no phone, the phones were switched off. And for Rob, a big distraction was cooking because he loves cooking. So we're like, no, 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 single food. It's literally just, it's no distraction, just you and I. And uh, or we do things like little exercises that I got from because I learned, you know, in my in my whole story of becoming a coach, there was also a phase where I did some couples coaching and I made sure that we did these things at home as well, but we didn't do it like a session. We did it more in a playful way. You know, there were exercises where you would get the couple to look in each other's eyes for a minute and just see what emotion comes up. It's incredible. It's so confronting when you haven't done that for a long time you think it's romantic and beautiful and the gaze but it's actually quite confronting when you haven't looked into your partner's eyes for a whole minute for a long time I saw couples bursting into tears doing that you know and Rob and I did that in a playful way and we laughed about it but then we got quite serious about it and you know things like that just keeping the relationship alive keeping the connection alive that's the biggest thing that was really important to us so it's very intentional that yeah. whole relationship. So, what would you yeah. say to someone who's who is staring divorce or a breakup or a separation right in the face? And mm-hmm. you know, they say, "Well, I I love this person, but the connection's not there. The romance isn't there. The mm-hmm. uh, you know, a million reasons why it, it yeah. might be where it is." And what's your advice to someone to to mm-hmm. find that spark or to you know, maybe see what see to go those thirteen years, if you will, or yeah. twenty or thirty or forty. And so, what's your advice yeah. for someone struggling at that point where they know they love the person, but there's a there's a distance that has grown between? Yeah, them. yeah. There are a couple of things I want to say. You know, when you when you actually listen to people, and I think listening is a huge keyword here, and you hear them talk about their partner, and they start their sentence something like, "I really love him," but and then there's the whole list. As soon as you use the word but, it pretty much invalidates everything that you just said before. And that is something that I've really learned from the coaching world, and it is true. So listening to your own language, how you talk about your partner, already tells you a lot, a lot about what you truly feel within that you might not be ready to admit to yourself, to your partner, to the outside world. And also when people say, well, just go and see someone, you know, see a mediator, see a couples coach, see a couple therapist. So often people wait till it's almost or often too late to actually do something. So it's that whole waiting for way too long, thinking, oh, no, we'll get there. We'll ju- we're just going through a rough patch. Also, 
even if it's just a rough patch, it's easier to do something in a rough patch than when the damage is already done, if that makes sense. And I think it's never too late to change something as long as both want it. And again, that's the key point here. When both people really want it, then it's not too late. And the last thing, and I think that's the most important thing of it all that I want to say here is, and that applies as well, uh, just as well to the world of couples coaching as well as grief coaching or in any any circumstance where you want to better your world, your life, your happiness factor is that too many people focus on how can I fix the problem rather than how can I be happy. See that little shift here? The focus doesn't need to be on the problem. The focus needs to go back to what you actually want. And in particular, in couples coaching, people go to town with problems. But you didn't do the dishes and you didn't kiss me goodnight and you didn't send me the text message and it's blame, 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 blame. Focus on problems rather than, do you remember the first time we met? I just can't forget that look on your face or what you were wearing or feel the, the difference when you talk about that. It instantly goes soft. It instantly goes within. It instantly touches deep emotion. And when people do that more often, you know, having a little walk part, walk down memory lane and sharing the deepest inner memories about the other person is such a beautiful start. And it's not that you ignore the problems, but you can then go, well, how do we get back to that? Or how can we create this for our future? And I think that's the key point here to focus on what you want rather than what you don't want. I love that. And I think it's so powerful what you're saying from someone who had, you know, you, you can look at your relationship as and as beautiful as it was. Yeah. And, and then he's gone. And and so you can look at other people's relationships and, and say, like, think about how you really would feel if that person was, mm-hmm. was just taken just like that. Yeah. And, I have used that a couple of times. Yeah. And, and how do you really, and, and in that moment, you can realize like how you really feel about that person. So tell us, yeah. Tell us what happened to Rob and and that story mm-hmm. and and then how yeah. you how you overcame that shock grief yeah. and so that's where we pause the story off you know fast forward thirteen years the boys were ten and eight and Rob went on a business trip to Perth to the other side of Australia and I still remember it was a Sunday we walked into the station because the boys were at home from school and they were in their scooter and it was like this really little happy family moment where we where we went and uh, he caught a train to the airport because it was just so much easier it's an awesome connection where we live and uh, we waited for the train and I had this weird tiny moment of I need to take a picture of Rob and the boys and it was not a good moment it was not a oh that's so nice I want to capture that it was a little bit something's going to happen I need to capture this and I didn't pay much attention to it I realized in hindsight that that's what the feeling was. I didn't want to pay attention to it. I just acted upon it. But I remember it vividly. And I remember taking a couple of pictures of Rob. And I even took a picture of the train leaving the station. And two days later, Rob was supposed to call me in the morning to wake me up. And I called me at 7.30. 7.31, I woke up and he hadn't called me. And I knew something happened. Because Rob was one, one of these people that I could so rely on. If he said he would call me at 7.30, he would call me at 7.30. So text messages, trying to get in touch with him, everything um, was unanswered, unresponded to, and my anxiety levels were rising. I was so in tune with him. I could actually feel 
that something had happened. And I didn't want to buy into it, but I couldn't ignore it for much longer. So it went on for hours and hours. And uh, then I had this epiphany, I need to call the hotel. And I realized Rob often did that. He would put the hotel where he was staying in my phone. And I called them and I said, look, I know my husband's staying with you. I don't want you to think I'm one of those freaked out wives chasing down their husband away on a business trip, but can you please go to his room because he was supposed to call me and I can't get in touch with him. Can you please go and check? And all of a sudden I had this flash of a vision of him collapsing in a shower. No idea where that came from. And I said, can you please check in the shower? That's all I said. I didn't tell them about the vision. I thought they must think I'm completely nuts if I called them and said I had a vision of my husband collapsing in a shower. It's very awkward to get that conversation. So that's where they found him. They sent staff up to his hotel room and they found him in the shower and Rob had a brain aneurysm and he pretty much died on the spot. Wow. They, of course, didn't call me back because of procedures that they had and they weren't allowed to, but uh, eventually a sergeant from the coroner's office rang me and um, shared the news with me in a very police-like manner. He said, I'm sorry to inform you that your husband deceased in a hotel room in Perth this morning and that's when the whole world just paused for me, complete silence. So you're in shock. You know, I don't even know how to how to feel about something like that. I've never had something mm-hmm. like that. But how, yeah. do you, how do you move on? How do you get started? And, and this is sometimes people feel in, in a, when a relationship ends, sometimes people feel like their world has ended, obviously not in the same context as yours. Yeah. But, but they feel lost. And, and how do you how do you even start? Like, and you have two sons. Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah. you're, you're alone. What was your mindset? What was your thought process like to yeah. that got you from there to where you are today, inspiring all over the world? Yeah. So in that very moment, I often describe this moment as it felt like, you know, there was a needle scratching over a record player while he was playing our favorite happy song. That's exactly how it felt like, you know. It was literally complete and utter silence. I remember just um, going down on the floor and sitting there, just in complete numbness. My One of my closest friends at the time was with me because I had called her because I was so worried about not getting an answer. So she came to, you know, run, ring around with me. She wanted to ring hospitals and stuff, and she didn't even get to the first hospital. I, I already She was on the phone to the first one, and I just just hang up you know so she sat there she looked at me I didn't know what to say I, I just had tears rolling down and I was in so much shock and I just thought of the boys the boys were downstairs in the living room and we've got the split level so half level up there's not even a door so they could have heard anything and everything so I was so aware of them being down there and they were literally in their uniform in a martial arts uniform because we were about to go to Hapkido they were due for their practice lesson you know so I remember my friend looking at me and saying, do you want me to take the boys? And I looked at her, if she was completely mental, I said, no. I, I thought there's no way I could let her take the boys away from me. Now they've just lost their dad. I cannot, you know. Mm-hmm. So I knew I had to go and tell the boys first. And I was walking down the stairs. I was on complete autopilot. I had literally the three seconds walking downstairs to make up my mind, what am I going to say to them, you know? And there was no sugar coating. So I literally sat down with them. I asked them to put their iPads down because they were playing. And I held both their hands and they just got a look on my face. They iPads were gone straight away. They looked at me like, Mom, what happened? And I said, um, I just received a phone call and um, that has passed away. 
And we thought at that time it was a heart attack, so that's what I said to them. And I expected that they would fall apart, but I did not expect the screaming that came. It really shocked me. It was crying and screaming. And and then, of course, they both hyped each other up around that as well. And I just held space for them. I just hugged them and we cried. And um, then the first questions came that I will never forget. My little one, the eight-year-old, said, um, I'm only eight and I'm not going to have a daddy anymore. He was sobbing when he said that. I'll never forget that. It's still echoes in my head now when I when I say it. And my older one looked at me. He was 10 and he said, but who's going to look after his mum now? And I said, well, I will. And I had no idea in that very moment that saying that out loud because after I said, I will, I said it again. I said, I will look after you, Flynn. And saying that out loud was like a promise, like something that I needed to say out loud, if that makes sense. It was something that I needed to hear. I needed to hear myself say it. I knew my boys needed to hear it. And one thing that I haven't shared before is that Rob and I had a couple of conversations over the years, as couples sometimes do, you know, when you hear something on the radio, something happens to someone, uh, what would happen if, and we both said, I would want you to take the boys and create the happiest life possible. And I remember saying to Rob, you are so beautiful. I love you so much. I would never want you to be alone for the rest of your life because, you know, you deserve to be with someone. The boys deserve to have someone. And it wasn't even just so much about finding a new partner. It was creating a new life for the three of them and then maybe four of them. The happiness factor was the most important one. And I believe when you love someone that much, that that's what you want for them. You want them to be happy, no matter if you're around or not. And I knew that was my one and only choice. And I made it there. And then I knew that what I wanted for the boys is to create the happiest life possible. I had no idea how at that stage, but I knew that was where I'm going. So you just need a goal. You just need a goal to know where you're going and then do the first step and then the next and then the next. There's no sprinting. There's no running at that stage. There's just the next step and that's all I did so I had set myself the autopilot that that's where I want to be when you're talking about grief like that there's mm-hmm. you know I've lost close friends and and people in my life yeah. and I've found that when you're in that stage and someone says well we'll pray for you or time heals everything mm-hmm. you don't want to hear that that that, that doesn't help and it's not people. true it, it, right and so yeah when you're facing grief like that, how do you how do you prepare or how do you go down that road knowing that maybe time won't heal this? But how do you then become okay with it? Like, you know, you start to live with it and you start to to like you said, you find that happiness in mm. in other things and, and in memories and so forth. But yeah, how did you find it? And how long did did it take you until you realized that I'm going to be okay and life still goes on and and we can take this and now this is just part of adapting? Yeah. I think one myth I want to bust straight away is that time heals all wounds. It doesn't. You do. And you only do when you allow it. And that can happen within weeks or months and that can happen 30 years later. I have met people that have been stuck in the same intensity of grief for 10, 20, 30 years and didn't see it or find it 
uh, as possible until they met me. And I don't want to make this about me. It's about the way how I work with people. It's about the allowing part that is so important. It's a decision you make. You need to allow yourself to have that joy in your life again and you need to decide that that's what you want. That's what heals the wounds. You deciding and allowing it in and then taking the necessary action steps for it, not the time factor. You know, as I said, I've met people that came into my course a week after their loss and then I had other people that came to me after 30 years of their loss and they had the same intensity. Sometimes the one a week after was in a better state than people 30 years after, if that makes sense. So time is not the factor here at all. It's the wanting it, the allowing it and deciding it and that I really want to stay up front. And how do you do that? As I said, for me, it was a decision that I made there and then. I knew that that's where I would be going. How? I had no idea. Uh, it was huge and scary at first, but I had no doubt in my mind that that's where I would go. And I know I was in a sort of lucky position in such that I had years and years of mindset coaching behind me. I had a whole tool belt of things that I could use. But it's so different when you help people in mindset to grow their business or when you all of a sudden have to deal with your husband's loss and knowing that your kids are only 10 and 8, you know. I was 20 when I lost my dad and I remember how how intense that was for me because I had none of those tools back then. I fell apart. My boys weren't even combined that old as I was, you know. They were 10 and 8, yet they had me and I knew that I needed to do anything and everything I could to support them. So what I did was I put my focus on happiness. I remember tiny moments where I was standing in the kitchen and when you ask my boys, like I sing all the time. When I'm happy, I sing. When I hear a line that reminds me of a song, I sing. And sometimes I'll sing it in my head, sometimes I'll sing it out loud, depending on the situation and how appropriate it is. But I remember the moment standing in the kitchen and um, one of my favorite songs that I sang to Rob all the time was Love is in the Air. And I remember starting to sing because it was a happy thing with sunshine outside and I started singing Love is in the Air and I could feel like my voice was leaving me. Because in that moment where I actually sang it out loud, I realized what was happening. And when my voice was leaving me, I also realized what had happened there. I had this judgment in my head that society teaches you, you're not supposed to be happy. You just lost your husband. You're supposed to fall apart. You're supposed to wear black for at least a year. And all these expectations that society teaches you. And this is my biggest point. Do not buy into that. Because it's not designed to heal you. It's not designed to make you happy. And you're supposed to be happy. You are in this world to live a happy life, not to suffer. And in that very moment when I realized what was happening, I allowed myself and I made myself sing that song. I was definitely not in the usual enthusiasm and usual strength that I used to have, but I made myself sing it and it was such a breaking point for me. I realized that that's what I needed to bring back into my life, the singing, the happiness, the love, you know, it's all of that. And um, there's one there's one tiny little exercise I want to share here quickly, if that's okay, because that's often the starting point that I give to people that find it completely impossible to change anything in their lives. I get them to choose their favorite color. I'm going to use the color orange as an example because it's one of my favorites. And for one whole day, I want you to focus on the color orange. Find as many objects and things as possible in the color orange. And I'm looking around and I see like a little orange lunchbox container here. Is there orange folder, a little clip for holding. I see the orange, uh, you know, flowers and picture behind me. There's so much orange in my life because I love it. So 
you choose whatever color you want and do the exercise for a whole day. And then the next day you come back and you replace the color orange with your deeply needed emotion that you're missing. In my case, that was love. So you take a whole day and focus on everything love, wherever you can see love. That might be a butterfly in the sky. That might be a smile of a checkout cheek when you go shopping. That might be a mum holding her kid's hand crossing the street. Anything, you know, people hugging on the street. You don't see it so much these days, but, you know, anything. If you watch a movie, you can see love everywhere. And it doesn't always have to be the intimate um, relationship sort of love. Love is everywhere. It really is everywhere. Love is in the air. And it is just up to us. <laughs> just that I'm telling you this, this is orange leaf flying through the sky. Isn't it amazing? I just love it. <laughs> so that's a little exercise. It's the focus. Where do you put your focus on? And the more you do it, you just can't stop seeing it. When you do the exercise one day, I promise you, you'll find orange everywhere for days and days, even when you stop focusing on it. And it's the same thing with love. And I consciously chose to focus on love everywhere. And there is so much around me. I'm just held by it all the time. And um, yeah, that's that's how I started my whole journey of focusing on love. So you're intentionally creating a diversion in your head because mm. it, our, our thoughts just want to go to the loss, to the hurt, to the pain, yeah. because they try to protect yeah. And, and you're intentionally creating a diversion and a distraction mm-hmm. and retraining your, that's phenomenal. I would have never thought of it that way, but, but mm-hmm. that's, yeah, you. I can see how that would help to get past the grief when, when someone is in, and this is whether, well, I guess it could be both ways because sometimes people are in relationships and no matter how long they are. And then when those relationships end, they, they don't want to go out. They don't want to see their friends. And that's a, mm. that's a stage of grief as well, I feel like. Yeah. When it comes to that type of grief, uh, is the biggest part of getting past that, like you said, not time, but more the acceptance of it? And how does one, if so, how does one accept it faster? And, and can mm. that also work in just what the exercise you just shared? Is that what you would mm. say? to always do to, to to basically get to that acceptance stage quicker? Yeah. I want to share another little story that will answer your question perfectly. And I often talk to people, I said, I know it sounds like a very, very basic thing to compare the whole grief situation with a monkey, but bear with me because there's a really important point and the story is quite short. So everybody knows that story of, you know, how to catch a monkey. You put a banana in a tree and you make a hole just big enough to fit the fish through. And then he tries to pull out the banana and he can't because he gets stuck because the banana is too big and doesn't fit through. You can talk to the monkey for hours and hours and years if you want to. He's not going to let go of that banana. He probably starts screaming and carrying on. And he is so focused on that that he would never let go. And when you say to a person that has got a problem, an issue, um, or lives in sorrow or lives in grief or whatever that is, I'm just saying something that doesn't make you happy. I don't want to compare grief to a problem, but I'm saying something that doesn't make you happy. And you say to that person, just let go. It's not going to work, just like the monkey and the banana. You know, it's not going to work if you say just let go. I've never understood how people can put the words just and let go in one sentence. It doesn't make sense. So how do you do it? 
you empty a whole bucket of banana or delicious fruit next to the monkey and he's going to go ballistic about that, not even thinking about that banana anymore. That process just happens. So if you put your focus on how do I let go, how do I accept, how do I get past this, you're not going to. It's going to be very hard. But if you focus on that whole pile of fruit, a.k.a. the happy life that you really want, a life of abundance, a life of love, a life of laughter and joy and happiness, you're not going to realize when that process of accepting and letting go will happen. It is not an active process. The active process is the focusing on what you actually want, the positive, the laughter, the happiness. I had so many people reacting and responding to me and saying, how on earth do you do it? How can you be so happy? you know, a couple of months after your husband passed. And I could never really answer that. But one day I just sat down and I actually um, also had a nervous breakdown. It was about three months after um, Rob passed. I had a nervous breakdown in the kitchen. It started over some bickering between the boys. And I said to him, can you just please, you know, Jerry's brushing your teeth and starting to fight. And I was in so much overwhelm with all the paperwork, with everything that was going on with the boys, with my mom being around from overseas. And even... You know, so some people might think it's good to have somebody with you. It feels like there's another responsibility that you just can't possibly carry in that moment. And I love her dearly, but it was too much for me. And I remember yelling out to them, I just need peace and quiet. And the moment I said that sentence, I could not stop myself. I said it again and again and louder and louder until I was screaming that sentence. And I was on the kitchen floor, whacking the covers completely ballistic. I, I really remember watching myself almost from outside of myself thinking, how am I going to stop this? I had no idea how to stop this. It, it was like I was watching myself from the outside. I couldn't stop it. And after that, everything was quiet. It was almost like that moment when I heard about Rob's passing. I was on the floor and everything was quiet. And I walked upstairs to the boys and I thought, how am I going to fix this? What they just witnessed. You know, I remember thinking, what damage have I done to them? Witnessing something like that. My little one was hiding under the blanket. My older one was sitting on a bed. And I talked to them completely calmly about what had just happened and how deeply sorry I felt that they had to witness that. And in that moment, I said it out loud to them and to me that I never would want them to witness something like that ever again. And that was the moment I knew I had to see a counsellor. I had to get help myself. And I did. I saw her for about four months. And I remember talking to her about exactly what you just asked me, you know, that how can you be happy after that? Because usually I dealt with it in a really great way. That that breakdown was really, you know, something that had to come out, something that I had suppressed for way too long. And I said, it's just that expectation, that expectation of what people have of you and how you deal with grief and how you're supposed to fall apart. And, and she looked at me so calmly and said, um, so what does grief mean to you, Marie? And I was so surprised that the first word that came out was empowerment. I didn't expect that. I was like, wow. And I looked at her and said, I think I need to write a book about that. And that was the seed planted where I just knew I had to share my story, you know. So, yeah. And and you probably found that there's thousands of people who feel the same way. Yeah. Who've, who've had... it's, it's really incredible when when you start speaking out about how you do things differently that you'll always attract a whole bunch of people that either already do it that way or really needed to hear that and want to do it that way as well so 
I wrote that book and I literally wrote and published a book within four weeks. It was literally like a like a download. When I started writing, I couldn't stop. And it was very conversational style. I just wanted to share my story, you know, how Rob and I met, literally what I just shared the last half an hour or so, how we met, how we fell in love, you know, the dream wedding, the dream home, the, the dream family and his passing and how I dealt with it. So little did I know that the next day when I woke up, the book ranked in the top 100 of Australia. So it didn't just become an Amazon number one bestseller. It actually ranked in the top 100 and I was absolutely blown away. I just knew I had something the world needed. I had no idea what to do with it at that stage, but I knew I had something the world needed and I was really blown away by that feedback. It was so humbling and so beautiful. It was, this was my love legacy for Rob, you know, writing that book. And it was just beautiful to see how people were so drawn to that. That's that's incredible. I I can't wait to buy it and read it. How, so I have two questions. I don't know if these intermingle with with one another, sure. but you the the story you've shared and and the stories you've shared about your relationships with your sons and how you talk to them mm-hmm. is it sounds like you're very vulnerable, open and vulnerable mm-hmm. with your connections with your your sons with your relationships yeah. you know how how do be, people become more vulnerable because i feel like in a, mm. we live in a time and, and probably always have as humans a lot of people struggle with vulnerability so that's one is how do you become so open and vulnerable and the second one maybe is no part of this but i i don't want to uh, this question's been in my mind since you've been talking mm. i'm also curious what your thoughts are on the importance of letting grief teach you something, meaning mm. you found a whole new world. That's goosebumps when you ask me that. <laughs> yeah, you, you found a yeah. whole new world on the other side of grief. Mm. And you didn't let grief consume you. And I'm also curious how, how that, you know, at what point in that journey did you realize that this is trying to teach me something versus just taking something from me? Wow. Loaded questions. So um, (laughs) (laughs) I had to, no, 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 I love this. I really love this. I, um, I had to chuckle when you talked about vulnerability because yesterday morning, literally uh, 24 hours ago, I sat here in front of this very computer and did uh, a live talk about vulnerability and it was the first time in my life that I shared some deep dark secrets of my childhood and I really spoke up about everything anything and everything that I ever hold back I talked about um, relationship breakup a relationship that I had after my husband's passing I shared everything and it was incredible because it was I expected it would be such a huge relief and this whole relief and calmness afterwards and it was so normal. It was so normal because I had been living vulnerability for so long without even noticing it. And I love that you'd picked it up straight away. You know, I hadn't even shared it with you uh, prior or not even in our pre-chat and you picked it up straight away just for my story. So for the outside world, it was so clear for me. I didn't see it. I just lived in a way that I felt was the healthiest for us. I didn't think this through as, oh, I need to be vulnerable so my boys can learn this from me. I, I never thought this consciously. But when you said, uh, you know, what did grief give you rather than take from you, I had never, and this might sound very bizarre because I never thought about this until you just asked me this now, 
I had never seen Rob's passing as there was something taken from me. Isn't that interesting? Something that would be so obvious for everybody else to Mm -hmm. think that way. I had not once seen it that way, which actually quite surprises me now. Like that's why I was completely gobsmacked when you asked me, how can you see that differently? And I'm like, wow, I never saw it that way. But that would be the obvious way that people say, you know, something big, something important, something beautiful was taken from me. So I think in a nutshell, I never used so much the words soul, body, soul, what do you call it? Soul, mate, soul, something. I talk about soul contracts. You know, I know that Rob and I had a soul contract and something deep within me knew when I heard the news that this was the end of his contract or the contract that we had together. And I didn't put it in these words at the time. It took me a long time to process that, or a long time, what's long, what's not. But it took me a while to process it, and then that's how it settled in my heart and in my mind. That was our full contract, and that was the end of it. And it is something that I couldn't share straight away because I needed to come to terms with that. I needed to process that. But now it's such a normal thing for me to talk about, and and I believe that's, when you see it as such, it's a very, very beautiful thing. And the one, I always talk about the hidden gifts in adversity. And once you discover them, they're not so hidden anymore. You can actually share them with the world. And I, I believe that that's what we're supposed to do. The gifts that we receive, we're supposed to share with the world. And one of my biggest gifts throughout the adversity was enormous strength and incredible intuition. I always had good intuition, but it just went through the roof after Rob passed. I had such a strong guidance. I always feel looked after, and I know even that sounds like a cliche, but I really do. I feel always looked after, always guided, always held. And um, even in times where I feel extreme loneliness, which does happen at times, where in particular, you know, with, with lockdown at the moment, I'm such a hugger, and when I can't see my friends and hug them, I, I had moments of real loneliness but even then I felt held and the boys Rob and I we had a very close connection already before Rob passed but after he passed that even went closer and closer we we had such a strong bond after that even more so than ever and maybe also due to the fact that a I was really open with them I was very vulnerable and open with them of what's what's happening I wanted to hear what was going on in their world And also for the first nine months, we literally spent every day and slept in the same bed or in the same room together due to the circumstances. Because first of all, because they didn't want to be alone, which I completely understood. And I think it was just as as great for them as it was for me to not be alone. We had a king-size bed, so there was enough space for the three of us to sleep in. And we needed a closeness. So for a while, we just fell asleep with both of us, the boys in my arms, to my left and right, and they needed that closeness and I needed it. And then after five months, we went traveling around the world for two months. So that, again, was we usually were in one hotel room or in one guest room with friends where we stayed or something like that. And then when we came back, it was still for a while. So the first nine months, it was literally... Uh, in one room, in one bedroom together, and then we sort of went back to a new normal, you know, when they went back to school, and uh, that's when they started sleeping in their own room, mostly. And, uh, yeah, so that really added to that closeness. But I thought vulnerability is really the only way because 
so often I talk to people that are in deepest grief. And um, I remember talking to a lady just two days ago and she had literally given up. She said, I've given up, you know, I just want to uh, get through this for my kids. And I said, but your kids feel that. She says, no, 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 I don't talk to them about it. But I said, it doesn't matter if you talk or not. Kids are so sensitive. They're so fine-tuned. They feel what's going on. If you don't open up to them about it, they do the exact same. It's learned behavior. Kids learn from our behavior. And I thought the more I'm open with my grieving journey, or I actually want to call it healing journey. I, I never call it grieving journey. I always call it healing journey. Uh, the more open I am with them, the more they learn how they can do it. And when I talk about things that are really uh, deep for me or fears that I have, then they learn to talk about fears. So I think that's the only way you can do it. People, in particular kids, kids learn by example, and I wanted to be that for them. You've, you've overcome a tremendous, tremendous amount of of. Just everything I feel like, like, like you're so open, vulnerable, and, and you processed your grief in, in ways I've never heard of anyone processing it, honestly. Let's say, you know, someone that, that listens to this podcast, they, they're in a dark place. Maybe, maybe, you know, they're struggling financially. Maybe they can't pay their mortgage. And now you have COVID. Maybe, you know, they lost someone because of COVID. And they're yeah. struggling and maybe they're in lockdown and, and, and mm. they're struggling with this, this just, you know, pressing of, of mm. the world around them. And when you think about where you are and, and, and you take that place of, of struggle and, and where you feel like you're just being beat down, that seems like such a broad distance between the two to, to be like, yeah. Well, if I could just be as happy as, you know, as Marie, if I could just have the insight Marie does, if I could just feel like I didn't lose something, but instead see that, that it it was a gift. Mm. When you look at all those things, it seems like a very big step. So yeah. What would your first step, meaning one applicable Mm. thing be if you were in that situation that you would yeah. advise someone to, to do? Like, what is the the one step, the one thing they can do that day to maybe take a yeah. step towards becoming vulnerable, becoming okay with it, accepting this mm. and, and finding the happiness within it? Mm. It, is, it is a very tricky question per se, because as you said, people are in such different circumstances. Like, I can so understand how people would look at me and go, like, it's such a long way. No idea how'd you get there. I, I can understand that when you're really, really deep, stuck in grief, not knowing how to get out. I think a very, again, I want to bring a generic example in that a lot of people can relate to. It's like when you are 90 kilos and you look at a woman that's 50 kilos and you're like, oh, there's no way I can lose 40 kilos. That will take me forever. I'll never get there. This is just... Oh, this is just too hard basket. You know, of course you stand there smiling in your skinny body thinking that it's so easy. And and that's why I'm sharing this because you need to listen to your inner voice. There's this, I can't, this is impossible, it's too hard, this is going to take too long. Of course, it's easy for you because you're there. So the inner voice is a huge thing to really listen to. What is the language that you're actually using towards yourself? And when you think about that, we never, Never, ever, without even knowing you, talk to our closest friends the way we talk to ourselves. 
the language we use, the debilitating and horrible language that we sometimes talk to ourselves, we would never use. If So I, I usually say, use the inner best friend exercise. This is when you slip out of yourself, you move to the side and you talk to your own self. You become, you slip into the role of your own values or even my husband's shoes. That's the most beautiful part, you know, because I know him so intimately. Just looking at myself from Rob's shoes and then thinking, what would he want me to do? And then all of a sudden, everything's supportive and full of love and full of, you can do this. I believe in you. I know you can. And if that's too hard, start with the tiny exercise I shared before. Pick one color, focusing out, focusing on it like for a whole day. And if you can do that, you can do everything else. It literally just takes the choosing a focus. Choice is a huge thing. And I so often hear from people, I didn't choose to lose my husband. Well, nor did I, but I chose what I wanted to do with my life afterwards. That's where your choice lies. And that's what we need to focus on, the things we can do, not what we can't. I love it. Well, we're coming up on time. I have two more questions. If you could pick any one person, alive or gone, and ask them one question, who would the person be and what would the question be? Wow. So I'm going to go with the very first thing that came up, which has got nothing to do with what we talk about here, but it's been in my mind since I was probably about, I don't know, nine, ten years old. I remember driving home. I think we were driving home from church one night. My dad was driving. We were in the back of the car and we were on the highway. And in front of us, there was an exit on the highway. And there was a car that wanted to go off the exit and not then off the, you could, you could tell they couldn't make up their mind. And all of a sudden, uh, there's this V-shaped metal part, you know, where the exit goes out and the car went straight front on, on that V-shape, flew up in the air by about four or five meters and burst into flames in the air. I'll never forget this vision. And I always had that feeling. It was on my mind for the rest of my life until now. The first thing when you asked me that was that scene that I thought, uh, the moment I die, I want to ask whoever is there, the creator, God, whatever you want to call it, whoever you believe in, what happened to that family. I needed to know as a child, I remember I needed to know if they survived or not. Besides that, I don't know why, but that's the first thing that came up. So I want to know if that family is okay. Isn't that weird? I did not expect that to come out in this interview, but there you go. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. What a story. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Next question. With everything the world is facing right now and the fears people have, if you were given the world stage and everybody's watching, everybody, some people are locked up, you know, some people are, yeah. are locked down, some people can't do this, some people can't do that. Entire world is watching you. What do you think the world needs to hear? What would you say? Mm -hmm. This is how they're going to remember you by. This is your kind of your legacy, if you will. This is how everyone's watching will think of you when you're no longer here. Mm -hmm. I love this. Thank you. I'll take that word. World stage happily. I believe I would want to share something that I have shared a couple of weeks ago was my birthday and we were driving home in the car and somehow the topic of fear came up. We literally just talked about it with my sons in the car and um, and I remember that moment where I thought, I think you're old enough to hear about this. 
And more so importantly, you have healed enough to hear about this. I'm thinking that to myself and I said, I want to share something with you. I said, remember, like shortly after that passed, when I had um, that nervous breakdown in the kitchen, when I was going through a really, really war time in my life, I said, my biggest fear that I had back then was that something could happen to you guys. And I said, it was so much more than a fear. I was petrified. I was petrified. I could not breathe thinking about it. I was really petrified that something could happen to either of you. And I said, the fear for me was so real because we had experienced something like that in our family and I could not shake it. And despite going to counseling, that one fear was the one I couldn't let go of. And this is where it all comes together. It didn't happen that I let go of it because I let go of it like the monkey and the banana. I kept focusing on love. I kept focusing on creating new happy moments, happy memories with them. And I said, uh, we all know in this car here, and we probably all know in the entire world out there, that none of us knows when our days are over. I could collapse right now in front of you in the camera. I could die peacefully in in my sleep in 50 years from now. We don't know when and how we go. But I said, the one thing I do know is that whatever time I have left, whether that is five minutes or 50 years, I want to live my life in love and in happiness and in joy and not in fear. And this is the choice I make every single day. Does it mean that I'm never scared? God, no. But it means that I know what my focus is. And just like you put your GPS on when you take a wrong turn, it reroutes and reroutes you and, and takes you back to where you want it to be if you know where you're going. And that to me is probably the one message that I want to leave the world with, that you have a choice to live your life from a space of love or from a space of fear every single day. And even if you're scared, you can always come back to love. So it's amazing. That's my little world stage speech. <laughs> well, Marie, <laughs> I've been blown away by this last hour. I, I would say riveting is is a word out of 50 some episodes that we've done on this show, I will say this has probably been the favorite, if not one of my favorite ones that I've, uh, I'm blown away by your strength, by your courage, by the way you see the world. Uh, I just want to acknowledge you for, for overcoming everything you've overcome. I can't fathom that, you know, the, mm. the closest thing, the closest person rather I have ever lost that I was, was my granddad who I was very close to. And that was hard, but I cannot imagine everything you've gone through. And for you to come out on this side of it and helping thousands of people, writing a book, uh, sharing your experience is one of the most beautiful things I think I have ever witnessed. And and I think the most powerful thing that you've said that I'm still trying to wrap my head around is because I don't know that that I could... I don't know that I would have maybe now that, that I've learned this from you. Yeah. I feel like had that happened to me, I would have felt like something was taken. And the fact that you didn't makes me just want to know even more about you and the way you were raised and how you got to that mentality and that mindset. And I think that yeah. is, is one of the most powerful things that you said 
this entire episode. And so I just want to thank you for I, being I want to thank you for that because I did not realize until you asked me that. So that was a huge epiphany for me. And I'm very, very grateful for that because in in the group, you know, you, you see so many different people and so many different stories and there's over 3,000 people now in our movement. But this is the first time actually somebody had asked me this and I'm very grateful for that because it, it's a very beautiful and meaningful realization for me too. So thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Uh, it's my pleasure. How can our listeners uh, find you, follow you? And we'll put all of these into the show notes as well. I have all your links, your social media sure. and everything. But where yeah. do you hang out the most? Meaning, you know, is there a social media platform or your website yeah. or where, where you yeah. interact the most with? Sure. I think the easiest way to connect is my website, mariealessi.com, because you have all the links to everything you need there. There's links to my programs, to my book, to the group, the movement that we have, and that's where I hang out daily, like literally daily. Uh, the group is Loving Life After Loss, and um, I'm there literally every single day. It's a Facebook group, as I said, over 3,000 people uh, to date and counting, and it's growing continuously, and it, the whole group is full of love and support. You don't find what you find in other grief groups where people compete about whose loss is fresher or more intense. This is all about growth and healing and love and support. So that's what I love about this group. All right. And we'll, like I said, we'll make sure that's in the show notes so people can just click on it. And Thank for you. Listeners, please leave us uh, reviews and everything about what, how, what you've learned from this episode and follow Marie. I love that. Support her because I know I will. Um, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in to The Ultimate Shift. Look, I know life is crazy. Life gets busy. And we all kind of have an idea of where we want to go and where we want to end up. But there's so many things that come up in between. And my goal with this show is to grab one thing from every guest that we can apply to our lives that help get us closer to our end goal. You can follow me on Instagram at Ephraim Glick, Facebook at Ephraim Glick, Twitter at Glick Ephraim, or you can go to the website at EphraimGlick.com. See you next time.